Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com give. Would you open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, the first chapter? We're going to have a sermon series to go with the candles that we light. This was an Advent uh, celebration. And the first candle that was lit is, is the prophet's candle. And uh, we're going to read this morning uh, the first three verses, uh, half of the third verse, from the book of Hebrews. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight. You who are our strength and our redeemer. We ask this through the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus. Amen. The book of Hebrews is uh, a book that is written without identifying the author and without identifying the recipients. Nowhere in the book does it say Hebrews, and nowhere in the book does it identify who writes this. Now, you might think this is unusual in the New Testament, but actually the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John don't identify the author. Uh, None of the Gospels identify the author. And back at that time, it was common for people who wrote things to write them anonymously. Now, you know that one of the criteria that was used in order for a book to get into the canon of Scripture, to be declared inspired Scripture, was apostolic authorship. And so there's been a lot of debate over who actually wrote the book to the Hebrews. Why do we say it's to the Hebrews? Well, the reason we say it is that this book uh, is... You know, I have images in my mind uh, of, of things, and my image with the book of Hebrews is that there's a mule, a donkey, who has planted his feet straight out in front of him, and he will not go forward. And that's sort of how I picture the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is written to the Jews who are refusing to be content with the new covenant and with Jesus Christ and who want to go back. They want to go back to what they know. Okay? And so that's why it has the title Hebrews, because it really feels just immersed in Judaism and saying, come into the new covenant. Do not stick back with the old covenant. Um, It's interesting it doesn't have a name, because this book does such an incredible job of lifting up the glory of Jesus Christ. And if, if there's one thing that's clear to anybody raised anywhere around uh, Christian publishing in the last 50 years, what you know is that the way to make a name for yourself is to write books. All right? Even more than being a musician. Sorry. Um, and here you have a perpetual 
uh, song, if you will, on the theme of the glory of Jesus Christ. And the author doesn't identify himself. And I love that. When I was a little kid, I wanted to grow up to write a book that would be anonymous. The Puritans used to do this. Um, as a matter of fact, before I came up here this morning, I was thinking, now how can I, I don't know how to do it. Because then you, what you have to do is you have to do interviews saying to them, well, I don't have any connection with the book, but I'm happy to be interviewed about the book. You know, that just doesn't work. So I don't know how to do it. Maybe we'll be able to figure out a way. Here the author of the Hebrews is, uh, is, shall we say, humble and modest. And it really is sweet we don't know the author. Because... Jesus shines gloriously in this book. Now, the purpose of the book of Hebrews is to call the Hebrew Christians to persevere in their faith and to go on to maturity and to remain faithful to the very end. It's obvious that they are being enticed to go backwards because the, book, the theme of the book is, no, 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 don't go backwards. And you see this immediately when it compares and contrasts the past to the present. You see it right away. God, after he spoke, and then it says long ago, to the fathers. Now, you know, I wouldn't be Tim Bailey if I, didn't miss, the, if I missed the opportunity. Right? Okay, people, fasten your safety belts. This is really going to shake you to your core. It says fathers. It doesn't say parents. It doesn't say fathers and mothers. It says fathers. I hope you have enough sense to be insulted by that. Never miss an opportunity to have Scripture insult you. Because otherwise it doesn't improve you. You know, fires assault you. is not my word like a fire. Hammers hit you is not my word a hammer. This word should insult you because you should say to yourself, what about the women? Right? Weren't there any women? Didn't God ever speak to any women? Am I, am I doing a good job of impersonating the, the spirit of our age? Where are the women? Well, notice what it says. He spoke long ago to the fathers. Doesn't say mothers. Okay, now, does that mean that he didn't speak to Sarah when he spoke to Abraham? Does that mean that he didn't speak to Eve when he spoke to Adam? Does that mean that God was silent to all the wives and daughters and sisters? No, please. Please. No, it doesn't mean that. God does not. Dismissive of women. God takes women very seriously. Did you see what the choir was singing up there? Mary was steeped in Scripture. And she didn't have any books to read. She knew Scripture inside and out. This is the thing I love about the women in Scripture is those who are feminine, not Jezebel. Jezebel didn't have an ounce of femininity in her. Her husband blubbered about not having Nabal's vineyard, and oh, Jezebel didn't miss a, a second. <laughs> you know, Jezebel just went right ahead and took matters into her own hands. Right? You remember that. Right? Right? Okay, okay. That, that's, that's, that's women today. Not you, but everybody that's not here. Okay. 
And so, yes, he spoke to the fathers. And because Abraham and Sarah were one, because that's what marriage does, is it makes us one, Sarah was addressed. She was addressed through her federal head, Abraham. Okay? And really think, if you don't like being relegated to being just a wife, we are just Adam's sons. That's all we are. And we all die because of Adam. So all of us in our lives at various moments are represented by other people. There are federal heads. That's why the chattering classes are so angry that President Trump is their president. Because he's the representative of the nation. We don't like that. I mean, not me, but you. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, this is past tense, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways. So what are the portions and ways that God spoke to the fathers? Well, if we look at scripture, we find a record of all these speakings, okay? For instance, God did speak to Adam. It's one of the tenderest and saddest places in scripture where you see God putting Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and Adam's wonderful uh, exclamation when he gives to Adam this glorious woman to be united with him, the two-in-one flesh, his wife. Almost immediately, Adam sins, and then what's the next thing that happens? Well, intimacy is destroyed. Almost immediately, As soon as they sin, they cover themselves. And then what happens? Well, God comes to enjoy fellowship and intimacy with Adam in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. And it's broken. Because why? Well, because Adam hides from God. You know that it's possible to hide from God in a worship service. You fight with your wife on the way to church and you refuse to apologize because you're a real fool. And so you sit in church and you don't have any intimacy with God. Why? Well, because you're supposed to make things right before you come to the altar. Okay? And so we look at this God going to speak with Adam. What a glorious thing. And Adam's ruined it. So God spoke to Adam. God spoke to Abel. God spoke to Enoch. I'm surprised there aren't more children named Enoch in this church. What a wonderful epitaph. Not epithet. Epitaph. You know it by heart? Huh? Come on, say it, Janice. Yeah. Enoch walked with God and was no more. Now, is that a satisfactory epitaph for you? Can they write that on your tomb? I'd be glad for that to be said about me. Right? I mean, what more do you want said? He walked with God. He is no more. (laughs) So yes, Enoch walked with God. And I have a very special connection to that because I got to work for three years with a man named Enoch who was so godly. And the contrast between him and the filthy, rich uh, estates that we worked on. And Enoch, this godly man, who had, his wife had died years ago, 
And then his, he had two sons. Neither of them had any contact with him whatsoever. And he, he sold at a very cheap price his house to a couple in his Baptist church. And he played the organ until his arthritis got so bad he couldn't play it anymore. And so his life was you know, very limited, very small, very, very, very small. He'd drive home and go to bed. He'd eat at this tiny little restaurant in Manchester by the sea. That's where it was. <laughs> and then he'd go to the Spaldings and sit there and he'd do the dahlias, he'd do the roses. I handled everything else because it was limited what he could do. And he would keep watch over the house for them. And he was godly. Enoch walked with God and he was no more. I just love that. So God spoke to Enoch. They were intimate with each other. He spoke to our father Noah, right? He found, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God and Noah were intimate. He spoke to our father Abraham. He spoke to him in visions. He also spoke to him uh, by visiting him. And what is Abraham called? Abraham is called the friend of God. If you feel overwhelmed by your sin... You remember the sins of the patriarchs, the fathers, and that God was intimate with them. You know the sins of Abraham. And Abraham was a friend of God. Don't you allow Satan to destroy your faith. God is the friend of sinners. It's the righteous he's no friend of. God spoke to our father Isaac. He spoke to Jacob in a dream. He spoke to our father Joseph. He spoke to our father Moses face to face. And so God, in the past, spoke to the fathers. He also spoke to them in and through the prophets. Now remember, the whole point of this is to contrast the covenant of, uh, of the Old Testament, the Jewish covenant, with the covenant of the New Testament, the Christian covenant. It's to contrast B.C., before Christ, and A.D., after Christ, all right? And so now we're looking at before Christ. He spoke to them, but he spoke to them through the prophets. And so God revealed himself to men who were then sent to his people to speak to them. There's a great book on the prophets called what? Called My Servants, the Prophets. Now, when I was a kid, I love the prophets. Now, why did I love the prophets? Well, I love the prophets because my mother was a prophetess. And my father was a prophet. Why do I say they were prophet and prophetess? Well, because my dad, uh, he didn't really care what you thought of him. When he wrote, he told the truth. And he wasn't always telling the truth because my father was limited in his knowledge, his understanding. Every human author makes mistakes, has stupidity and foolishness and pride. So I'm not saying that everything he said was true. But when my father set out to say something, he set out to model the biblical prophets, right? And so, for instance, when we moved to Wheaton um, from Philadelphia, it was a new place, well, my mother and father had gone to Wheaton College with Dad Taylor and Mom Taylor and with Billy Graham, all those famous people. They were all at Wheaton College together. 
And so the natural thing for my father to do if he was going to move to the Midwest from Philly was that he would live in Wheaton. And the natural thing is that he'd work for one of the very wealthy religious uh, sales organizations in Wheaton, you know, come home, Joe. But he didn't do that. I remember being out there on some trip uh, with my dad alone, and I remember going into a real estate office and my father saying, no, we will not be living in Wheaton. And I didn't know what that meant at the time, but then, in a while, we moved out, and we moved into a house they had built way out in the country. Now it's all filled in, but at that time, we were right next to a farm, dairy farm. We were 11 miles out of Wheaton, and man, did that irritate people in Wheaton. You know, what's Joe thinking? Why isn't he in Wheaton, you know? And I'm absolutely, and then he went to work for David C. Cook Publishing instead of Scripture Press. Well, Scripture Press was Christian because it was dispensational. Because dispensational and Christian are the same thing. Anybody that's read Scripture knows to be dispensational is to be Christian, right? Okay. But David C. Cook was sort of the mainline Sunday school publisher in Scripture Press. Well, now that was, that was the godly Sunday school publisher. And here dad went to work for David C. Cook. Now, it doesn't matter that over the course of the coming years, dad completely focused on making the commitments of David C. Cook to Scripture clear. That he was a reformer there, right? No, he had not come home, you know? And then the thing that really galled them, all right, in Wheaton, was the fact that right before he moved there, my dad had written a book called The Gospel Blimp. And what they said was, Joe's making fun of us. And he was. You know, it was this satire about how evangelicals do missions work and evangelism without ever loving a particular person. They do it from a blimp, the gospel blimp, you know. They won't go next door and talk to the neighbors, but they'll yell at them from the blimp and drop cellophane-wrapped tracts and pieces of scripture in their gutters and clog up their lawnmowers, and, but they won't talk to their neighbors. And so dad had just written this spoof on evangelicals, you know. Then it became a movie. And... So I grew up loving the prophets because I grew up watching my mother and father not fear men. And it was interesting. Dad taught uh, the main Sunday school class team, taught it with uh, Ken Hansen at College Church. And all these leaders were in that class and they loved my father. But he never got any of the bobbles. You know what a bobble is? It's not when you drop the ball and you're a juggler. A bobble is that stuff that you put on if you don't know you're pretty and you think that you have to buy little trinkets to make yourself pretty. That's a bobble, okay? So it's like, you know, all these things that people put on themselves and it, all, what it does, well, I won't say what it does. I've, I better be quiet. Okay. And so as a, as a child, I grew up reading the prophets. And my heart would beat within me. I mean, literally, I just loved the prophets. Because the prophets were like my father and my mother. Now, are you all with me? 
And I think it took me quite a while to realize, I didn't realize the opposition at our church and in Wheaton to my dad. I was sort of oblivious to it. I adored my father, and I figured everybody did, you know? But I didn't realize that it wasn't just my dad who people just really didn't like. I, then I realized that it was actually the prophets in Scripture that they didn't really like. You know? First of all, there was never any text from them. But second, I went off to seminary. It was Billy Graham Seminary, you know, Gordon Conwell's. It was where any evangelical muckety-muck would send their children. I don't know why my dad sent us there, but he did. But anyhow, I went there, and I had a, a professor named Thomas McComiskey. And he was an Old Testament scholar. He was from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He was like on sabbatical and was teaching Amos. And everybody would say, you want to buy his commentary on Amos. It's wonderful. But I was in the class. And, and I was, I was mind of my own business one day in that class when Thomas McComiskey read this text. Woe unto you, cows of Bashan, who say to your husbands, bring that I may drink. Now listen, if there is anything in Scripture that's misogynist, it's that statement in the book of Amos, because it's, 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 it's God, through his servants, the prophets, shaming the women. Not men, women. For what? Well, for telling their husbands to bring them something to drink while they sit on their sofa bed. Now, come on, we all know that that's shameful, right? We all know that, right? I mean, are, are we really so far gone? We don't know that's shameful. And so I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, yeah, I could picture it, you know? You know, Jerry Clark's talking about how he has his wife able to watch her soap operas here and here and here and go out in a, in a gold Cadillac and, you know, mama don't want you messing with her good thing, right? You remember that routine. If you don't, you've missed the basic part of American culture. Jerry Clower, C-L-O-W-E-R. He was a Christian, okay? And, and Thomas McComiskey looks at us when we arrive at that text in this class on Amos the prophet, and he says, uh, he says, now, you should not misunderstand this text. This text is in no way demeaning to women. Are you serious? It was so over the top that I didn't argue. I just thought, how am I even going to talk to this dude? If he knows Amos, he's here to teach us Amos, and you take what could be argued as the apex of the book of Amos, you know, the most definitive rebuke to the people of God in the book of Amos, and he says, don't worry, this is not harming any of the feelings of women. You're misunderstanding it. God spoke through the prophets, and when the prophets spoke, Everybody was seriously shamed. Okay. If you don't know that, you're not reading the prophets. And if you're reading the prophets and you don't blush as you read them, you are not reading the prophets. Because the prophets were God's word to his people. In the past, God spoke in a whole bunch of different ways to our fathers. 
In the past, God spoke to them through the prophets. An awful lot of scriptures, the prophets. And God didn't just shame them for their sin. But, and it's the weirdest thing about the prophets, but cheek by jowl, right next to each other, in the prophets, are, woe to you, Calzabeshan. He will gather you together as, 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 as lambs, and he will shepherd you like Moses. Woe to you, Calzabashan. In other words, in the prophets, it's very clear that God loves sinners. It's very clear that he's intent on impressing upon us our sin. And then, right then, when we're fully convicted and ashamed, impressing upon us his mercy to sinners and his desire to heal us. Okay? As you understand that, you'll learn to love the prophets. The prophets are not malicious. The prophets are not um, pugnacious. The prophets are very weak men. If you look at them, they're very weak. Why do you think we call Jeremiah the weak, weeping prophet? I was recently trying to talk about the glory of being a prophet uh, in that online thing uh, that we write. And so I went looking for a picture that had to do with prophets. And I hadn't thought of it, but immediately there's a man way down at the bottom of a muddy hole. That was Jeremiah. And he had it a lot better than, <laughs> than Ezekiel. And I'll just leave that with you. If you want to figure it out, you can figure it out. I'm not going to offend the women and children. But let me tell you, you would not want to be Ezekiel. Okay? God spoke to us through the prophets, and the prophets spoke to us, not just of our sin, but of God's mercy. And you look at Isaiah 53, and you see what Isaiah 53 says of God's coming promised when the anointed one, Jesus. He'd be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace is upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah the prophet. Okay, now this is the beginning of the book of Hebrews. All these things are being brought to the memory of, 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 of God's people at this time, shortly after the crucifixion of our Lord. And then, what we read is that God did not just speak in the old days, but it says God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. Then he says this, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. Do you see that this is a pivot point? We've got the past, now we have the present. And the reason that the apostle, well, <laughs> it is an apostle. The reason the apostle is talking about the past is to, if I can say this about scripture, to subjugate it, to relegate it, to put it down. Because what the Jews are doing is they're taking all the Old Testament and they're saying, you can't throw that out because that was God. So he says, yeah, it was God. 
But now he's spoken through his son. And so the rest of the way through the book of Hebrews, you have this growing crescendo of the glory of Jesus Christ. All right? I mean, it's unbelievable. You get to the point where it talks about Jesus being a priest who can, who can identify with us in all our weakness. And so we can trust him to be our advocate. We can trust him to pray for us and to help us. And it just grows and grows and grows. It's later in Hebrews that you come to the great hall of faith, where the faith of all of our fathers and mothers is given to us. And so now we come to the present, and the point of the apostle in writing this is to get us to not plan our feet against the present and go to the past, but to, to joyfully embrace the present, and specifically to embrace Jesus Christ. In these last days has spoken to us in his Son. So no matter how glorious the prophets were, and the patriarchs were, now he's spoken to us through his Son. Now I wouldn't be Tim Bailey if I didn't spend some time talking about that. Not his daughter, It's not that God doesn't speak to us through our daughters. Let me tell you. I have much personal experience in this. But Daddy, we're only doing what you taught us to do. (laughs) Well, stop it. (laughs) My family knows what I'm talking about. Um, Listen. Uh, if you want to follow the theme of the Son of God, the best place to go is the Gospel of John. Read the Gospel of John and focus on Father, Son. What was it that God said when John the Baptist baptized his son? The voice came out of the cloud and it said, this is my... Why can't Dutch men say this? Why do Dutch men find it impossible to say, I love you? Have you noticed that? It's not just Dutch. I think it's all Scandinavians, too. If God can do it, why can't you do it as a father? God didn't just do it tenderly at night when he talked to men. Do you know that God did it so that the whole world that was gathered there and saw his son being baptized would would hear him? God said, this is my beloved son from the clouds. And he pleases me. And you listen to him. (laughs) Oh, man. I'm telling you, as a dad, I'm in it. it. I'm all over that. What a wonderful thing for God to have. And then the transfiguration, exactly the same thing from the clouds. God made it clear this was his son, and Jesus pleased him, and we were to listen to him. Okay? Now God has spoken to us through his son. You know, all in the Old Testament, from the very beginning after the fall, when God talked about his son crushing the head of the serpent, all through the Old Testament, 
it points to his son. Isaiah 53 screams Jesus Christ. It screams the Pharisees and Sadducees. It just completely describes the suffering servant. Okay? Now, I wouldn't be Tim Bailey. If I didn't make the point, you must not allow political correctness to rob you of understanding about this text. This text and the entire book of Hebrews are is all over Jewishness. That's what's the center of it. And if you're committed to not offending the Holocaust industry that is political correctness, you're not going to begin to understand this. The whole point of this book is saying, stop being a Jew. I mean, do you see that? They want to plant their feet, and they want to go back. What's the book of Galatians? Oh, they want to stick with the sacraments God gave in the Old Covenant. You have to be circumcised, right? And then they want to stick with the truths. And, and at that time, the temple was actually a temptation to them because it was still having the offerings. It still had the sacrifices. So, listen, the way I think about this is if you read any of the accounts of the pastoral care and discipline of the church five centuries ago in, in Geneva, what you'll quickly run into are all kinds of cases where the people of God, under the leadership of the shepherds in Geneva, are returning to Roman Catholic worship. It's all through it. You know, she's saying the Hail Mary. She's praying to Mary. Oh, she, he, he went on a trip to this town, and he went to the Mass when he was at this town. And they're just disciplining these people right and left. Now, why would they discipline them for engaging in Roman Catholic worship? Well, okay. Now, I'm not anti-Catholic, okay, at all. I'm just anti-Roman Catholic. All right, and there's a difference. But I'm not really anti-Roman Catholic. I'm anti-people who are against the present revelation of Jesus Christ by going into the past, okay? Requiring circumcision, uh, following the holy days of the Jews, all the things that people do who don't want to embrace God and Jesus Christ. But I'm also against the people who are not content to, to, to stick to Jesus and who want to to bring the Old Testament sacrifices into the New Covenant. And how do they do that? Well, they do that by sacrificing Jesus over and over and over and over and over and again. And that's what the Roman Catholic Church says it does. It's sacrificing Jesus Christ every time a Mass is said. And the book of Hebrews obliterates this. It says, the sacrifice, one sacrifice, once completed. And if you think that that's a small thing to build my statement on, that I'm anti-Roman Catholic, then look at all, and I used this word in the first service, and I'm going to use it again. And if you don't know what it means, I'll, I'll explain it when I get done using it. But the word is frippery. Now, does anybody know the word frippery? My son-in-law, Ben, after the service said, I don't know the word frippery. And I said to him, frippery are all of the seraphs on letters in typology. 
That's frippery. You've got serif fonts and sans serif fonts, okay? And serif fonts always have frippery. You know, they have a little turn, a curve, a, you know, sans serif fonts, straight lines. Helvetica is the best known one. Times is probably the best known. That's what the Roman Catholics do. They're not content to have the preaching of the word and to proclaim the death of Christ until he comes again. What they do is everything they touch, they, they gild it. You know the expression, a gilded lily? Who would gild a lily? You know how some beautiful women are so insecure that they, they commit frippery against themselves. You know? Every piece of exposed skin is painted a different color, and they sit, you know, in, in, uh, in Nordstrom's and... You know, you know, and then they go out, and it just is hideous. You ask any man, he'll tell you if he's honest. Men don't like that. Why? Well, because it's gilding the lily. God has made women beautiful. No woman is not beautiful. None. Now, take Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ beautiful? Is Jesus Christ beautiful? Do you know, have I told you that at the uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art that Marilyn and I got to go to recently, there was one picture that was my favorite. Did I tell you which one it was? It was a picture of Jesus. And I don't believe in pictures of Jesus, but I like this picture. You know why? It was different than any picture of Jesus I've ever seen. Because Jesus was what? He had no form nor comeliness that we should desire him. He was ugly. And I thought, that painter got it. We can sin against the glory of Jesus Christ by trying to remain Jews and planting our forefeet and saying, I ain't going to go. We can also sin by saying Jesus needs to be improved on. Okay? And that's what John Calvin in his commentary on this section says is the point that's being made here. In Hebrews, he says the Roman Catholic Church is going far beyond Jesus. They think they have to improve him. And listen, you know how I've told you I, I thought that the cathedral in Cologne was hideous? Do you remember me telling you this? You come up out of the bowels the of, the, of the, uh, uh, the train station, and you look through the window, and there it is, and it's covered in black. It's such a fitting picture. And everywhere you go in that cathedral is what? Well, frippery. They don't, it, it, you almost think that they would super cool the air in the cathedral so that anybody that dares to speak, immediately crystals would come out of their mouth. You know? I mean, if that, that conduit would be a violation of every principle of Cologne. It would have gargoyles coming out of the top and hearts coming out of the bottom and angels coming out of the side. That little conduit, you wouldn't believe what Roman Catholics could do to that conduit. Every single place you turn there is unbelievably ugly. Because why? Because it's unbelievably beautiful. And it overwhelms you. And every nook and cranny you go into is another shrine to Mary. And more people lighting candles and more gold. 
everywhere you go in that. What is that except improving on Jesus Christ? The reform of worship was central to the Reformation. And how was worship reformed? It was reformed by coming back to Jesus, who was despised and rejected of men. As a matter of fact, what was Jesus? Well, he was a king, king of kings and lord of lords. We know that. And he was a priest, you know. He was tempted in all ways like as we are, yet without sin. But what was Jesus? Jesus was a prophet. He was a prophet. And before he wound, and before he healed, he always wounded. We don't need to improve on Jesus. We don't need to win people to Christ by the bruise that we drink or the soul patch or the cigar. We don't need to improve on Jesus by having weekly communion and wearing robes and surplices. We don't need, actually, to become Anglicans and Lutherans. We don't need to become Presbyterians. What we need is to put Jesus Christ back at the center of our worship. And he is not back until the one who speaks for him is a prophet. Do you understand me? Do you understand me? Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. That's the point of the book of Hebrews, and we lit the prophet's candle. Phoenix. And give me Jesus. I don't want Tim. I don't want Stephen. I want Jesus. That's all. You know, at the end of Stephen's life, we will put on his grave, Stephen walked with God, and he was no more. <laughs> you know, what a wonderful thing. Let's pray. Father, please give us humility and meekness in our worship. Please, Father, help us not to have a hankering after bells and smells. Help us to always have servants of God who will speak the word of God to us. And we thank you for the author of Hebrews. In Jesus' name, amen.